and rejoice that, and that's up to us to share the word. We're going to look at John chapter 3 today, talking about being born again, which is just what they have been experiencing in their lives. And as typically happens, it, it wasn't a lightning bolt, all of a sudden kind of thing. It's been a process, a process of uh, instruction through the Team Kid program, through some of the videos we've watched that presented the gospel, through uh, Jara sharing with them her experience, and it all just culminates in that decision, yes, I need to and I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. We're in John chapter 3. We're going to look at the whole chapter. We're going to focus on verses 5 through 8, if you'll read along with me. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Let's pray. Dear precious Father, we thank you so much for this glorious experience today and these two young women uh, demonstrating their decision to follow you as their Savior and Lord, their testimony through the baptism, the smiles on their faces, and their desire to know you deeper. Father, we thank you for your scripture, for what it teaches us, and help us as we open it today to understand that we might hear your voice speaking to us and make the application that you would have us make. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The occasion of the scripture is uh, it's, uh, nearly at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He hadn't been going very long, and Nicodemus, a Pharisee, one of the teachers, comes to him at night. And much has been said that he came at night because he didn't want to get the reprisal of his fellow uh, rabbis and Jewish leaders. Not necessarily so. It just may have been convenient for him to come at nighttime. Jesus was busy ministering during the day. So for whatever reason, he came at night and he came in to Jesus, and he, he starts out talking. He says, we know you are from God for the signs that you have done, the teachings that you give. And I can see Nicodemus coming in and just kind of maybe seeing himself as a peer with Jesus, that he was one rabbi talking to another, and they'd sit down and they'd hash things out a little bit. I don't know if you've seen the movie Yentl. It's one of my favorite movies with Barbara Streisand. Beautiful, beautiful songs. In that, it really gives us a picture of the Jewish learning back 100 years or more ago. They didn't have really established schools. This would have been in Europe. So they would sit and they would just debate the scriptures between each other as they learned them. And they would get a somebody a little more learned in their group that would guide them, but they'd bring up and say, well, so-and-so says this, and this one quoted that, and they would sit and debate what the Scriptures mean, what the Torah mean, what the Mishnah need was, means as one of their writings. But it, it, it was kind of an open debate, but learning as well. 
And I have a feeling that's what Nicodemus was thinking he would do with Jesus here. He recognized that Jesus knew the scriptures. He recognized that Jesus had some power imbued him on God because he had done miraculous signs. And so he, he comes to sits down to chew the fat with them to talk about things. And Jesus cuts that off. He, he, he has a way of doing that. He wasn't going to let Nicodemus go there. And just as Nicodemus gets started, he says, you must be born again. Well, Nicodemus wasn't a stupid man. He thought, how can you be born again? I can't go back in my mother's womb. Bless the poor mother if that should happen. And he said, so how can this be? And Jesus says, are you a teacher? And yet you can't understand these things? You can't teach them? And so... Jesus then proceeds on to tell him, but part of it I want us to look at is who Nicodemus was. As I said, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. There were about 6,000 Pharisees in the nation of Israel that day, so it wasn't a small, small group, but it was a small percentage of the population. It meant that he was educated in the ways of the law. It meant that he had dedicated himself to following the Mosaic law, the, the law of God. And so that's part of who Nicodemus was. He was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were part of three sects, three groups at that time. You had the Essenes who believed in the essentials. They were kind of the fundamentalist Jews. They were the ones who were really hardcore and uh, sticking to some of the uh, really rituals. The Pharisees were kind of in the middle. They were a little more moderate. And then you had the Sadducees who were the more kind of liberal elite ones. And the Sadducees and Pharisees had some different views about what happened. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And some preachers coined that's why they were sad, you see, because they didn't have the hope of resurrection. So you had the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were also kind of popular with the people because they operated the synagogues. It was the Pharisees who would instruct their children, give their children an education, and so that was certainly valuable to the parents that their, their children would learn and, and become more educated and be able to be more substantial and independent in life. So the Pharisees were really the... Of the three, they were the more favored, and they were the more middle-of-the-road moderate. They did believe in the resurrection. They did believe in the Messiah, uh, although they didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So that's one thing about Nicodemus that we know. So he was educated. He was reared in the Jewish faith. He was also part of the Sanhedrin and if you'll remember at the time, the Romans were the conquering uh, army of that day. They were dominating the country. They've dominated much of the world at that time, all around the Mediterranean. And the Romans, while they maintained control, they did allow some local autonomy. They would let the, the local cities have some uh, control over their people and certainly the Jews, the Romans did not want to get in. They didn't understand Jewish theology, but they didn't want to be dealing with religious matters. So they turned that over to this ruling council of the Jews called the Sanhedrin. And there were only 71 
people on the Sanhedrin Council. So we go from 6,000 Pharisees down to 71, and Nicodemus was one of those 71. So that kind of tells us that he had some recognition, some status in his society that, as being a learned leader, as being a capable leader, that he would be selected to be a part of that council. And then Nicodemus was probably, for that day, pretty well healed. He probably had more income coming in than many, many people around him. So he was an educated person. He was a very religious person and following and believing and following the Mosaic law. He was a teacher and he was probably well off, though it doesn't speak to that uh, exactly, but we can glean that, we can infer that from who he was. We don't know if Nicodemus ever became a Christian. There's no record that he actually became a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, but we have some clues that maybe he did because when Jesus was crucified and had died on the cross, it was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea that went to the Romans and said, can we take him down to bury him so that he didn't on the cross through the Sabbath? So they had some compassion for Jesus, they had some respect for Jesus, and they had that love and heart. So perhaps they did become a follower. We just don't have anything definite about that. But Nicodemus certainly had uh, a, a place in his heart and a, a respect and a love for Jesus Christ. But Jesus has put this quandary, and Jesus, that's part of what makes him such a wonderful teacher because if you can get the student asking a question, they're much more likely to listen to the answer. And so Jesus just comes out. He, he first, uh, I really think he kind of shortcut Nicodemus' debate and thinking he was on a level field with Jesus and was going to talk about the different laws. He cuts him off, says, you got to be born again. As I said, Nicodemus says, how can you do that? It's confusing. And Jesus kind of chides him and says, wait a minute, you're a teacher and you don't know these things? And then Jesus makes that statement, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that a person must be born of the water, that which is spirit is spirit, and a person must be born of the spirit. Certainly today, I'm sure they knew it back then because the same process happened, but Perhaps more so today, we understand when a woman's water breaks, that's one of the signs of impending birth. And so the, the fetus is, at first, it's encapsulated within uh, the womb with water around protecting, and thus we are born of water. But we also must be born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and that is a new birth. And it happens because way back, and it's hard sometimes to understand how these things just are so when they're so old. But then on the other hand, it's amazing how things carry over. How many people, how many parents want to name their daughter Jezebel? That goes back thousands of years. But Jezebel was a very, very wicked woman who had no problem putting people to death, sought to put Elijah to death. And so it tends not to be a name 
that's bandied about too much, and that's thousands of years. So a lot of things hold on for many, many. But our sin nature is something that happened when Adam and Eve fell. It, through their disobedience, it allowed their spiritual death, the death of their spirit. And from that day on, that's passed on down through each and every human. When we come into this world, our spirit is dead to God. We're not aware of Him. We don't think about Him. We don't seek Him out until the Holy Spirit Himself quickens us, as Paul says. And that quicken is, is to bring alive, to bring awareness to. So sometime, if you have come to that knowledge of Jesus Christ and uh, virtually probably everybody in our country or most everybody has, though it's getting worse, but you, your understanding about who Jesus is, it's not because you sought Him out, but the Holy Spirit revealed that truth to you. The Holy Spirit woke you enough to understand there's something missing, that there's a void. And we can see that void over the history of mankind. Mankind, pagan, uh, uh, back to, to the ancient days has sent something greater than themselves. And so they have worshipped the sun, moon, and stars. They have built altars. They have worshipped mountains. And there's a fascinating study of the gospel and the stars where the ancients who had nothing to do at night but lay and look up at the stars, God put the gospel in the stars and all the constellations, though now they've been adulterated into different meanings uh, through the Romans and the Greeks, originally they told the gospel. And there is in the southern hemisphere a southern cross, the cross of Jesus. But each one of those, it's a fascinating study. There's books on it I encourage you to read. But the Holy Spirit takes that initiative to make us aware of our need of Jesus Christ, our need of a relationship with the Father. And then we start hearing the gospel. We start hearing the teaching. We start hearing what it is we need. And prayerfully, hopefully, we come to accept it for ourselves, just as these girls today have testified they had. But we realize we have that sinful nature and we start realizing that we don't do things right, that we do make mistakes. And we can even admit, I think every one of here could raise your hands, that it's really easy to do things wrong even when you want to do things right. The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul said, said that that which I want to do, I do not do, and that which I want to do, I do, a wretched man that I am. We can strive, we can intend to do everything, to treat everybody right, to be right for God, and then the next thing, the next breath, we're doing something wrong. It's just that sin nature that we have to overcome, but the lesson of the whole Bible, the history especially the Old Testament is, we can't do it. That we don't have it within ourselves to live an absolutely perfect life because that sin nature and it makes us look out for ourselves. It makes us self-centered. It makes us uh, do for us and, and omit others. And so we were doomed. 
in that sin nature because God says, be ye perfect even as I am perfect. And that we cannot go into his presence unless we are completely cleansed of sin. And they had the Old Testament rituals where once a year the high priest would go into the holies of holies and he would sprinkle everything with blood uh, of a shed lamb in order to cover the people's sins for that period. It wasn't permanent. It had to be done every year. And it wasn't actually cleansing them of our, their sin. It was just acknowledging that need to, from the people before God. It was also a picture of a lamb that was going to come one day. A lamb that was slain for our sins. A lamb that was on the altar and whose blood atoned for us. And that lamb is Jesus Christ. His blood was shed for us. So all of that is pointing to that need that we have in our life to have an atonement for our sin, that that's the only way we can have fellowship with the Father. That's the only way that we can gain entry into heaven. And that's the only way that God can come live with us. If you'll think back to the Old Testament, you can think about uh, some of the great men and women of the time. And, and uh, Samson's a very good one. He would be living his life, and he was kind of a, a wild man. He, he was a follower of God. He was a Nazarite, but he kind of went his own way. And then at the very end, the Philistines have him. They've gouged out his eyes. They're making a mockery of him. They take him to the temple to kind of uh, make light of him, and he, he asked to have his hands placed on the pillars on either side. And he calls out to God and the Spirit of God comes on him and he's able to push those pillars apart and that temple come crashing down. God's Holy Spirit would come on his servants for a work, but then it would depart because his Holy Spirit cannot reside with man with sin in our lives. Jesus Christ, when he came, he atoned for that sin once for all. And we have that beautiful picture in the New Testament of when he died on the cross, that that great veil of carpet that was in the temple separating the high place to, from the Holy of Holies was ripped from top to bottom forevermore, allowing access for anybody who accepted Christ to go into the presence of Almighty God. And we have that benefit today because Jesus Christ paid that price for us we have free communion with God. The only thing that messes that up is when we sin. It gets in the way. I can relate it to when I was a boy. I had a good relationship with my parents. My, my dad and I would go sailing. We would do different things. We would, uh, I would work with him repairing TVs or whatever it was. But when I disobeyed, I kind of didn't want to be around dad. I kind of didn't want to see him because I knew he'd be disappointed with me. I knew he'd be angry with me. And so that misbehavior on my part interrupted my relationship with my dad. But of course, sometimes dad would pull out the belt. They could do that back then. Sometimes, and my dad was really good about this, he could talk to you. 
One night, Randy, a friend of mine and I, we went roaming the town at night. Two, three in the morning, we were out and about. Again, you could do those kind of things in the 60s. Well, we came in. Dad had built a little bedroom all on our garage where Randy and I were sleeping, and Dad's waiting for us. We come in, and he starts talking to us about how much we worried him, and they didn't know if we were alive or dead. By the time he finished, he went on into room. Randy said, let's don't ever get on his bad side again. He never laid a hand on us, but he could lay a sermon on you that you didn't want to hear it. But it breaks that fellowship, and that's what happens between us and God. When we fail to obey Him, when we choose our own way, it creates a barrier, a momentary barrier. It doesn't take our salvation away. It doesn't take us out of uh, His eternal love. It just creates a, a fellowship barrier. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that relationship is restored. So this is the information that Jesus is giving Nicodemus here. Nicodemus, you're well-knowledged in the law. You're a Pharisee. You teach others how to keep the law. And there was much more than the Ten Commandments. By the time Jesus came around, the Pharisees had, had morphed that into some 600 different laws. If you were a tailor, in other words, you did alterations or you made clothes, on a Sabbath day, if you forgot and left a pin in your lapel, you were guilty of working. Ladies, if you had taken time to look in a mirror before you went to, to worship and you straightened your hair, you were guilty of working, and that was a wrong. So they had made things like that, and that's why Jesus got upset with them, because those became oppressive to the people, and they missed the point. So God's talking to Nicodemus. You know the law. You know how to do that. You're a, you're a leader. You're uh, of the Sanhedrin. You're comfortable, but you don't have salvation because you have not been born of the Spirit. And then Jesus goes on with that verse that's so famous to us, John 3.16. And you read along with me, okay? Or say it with me. I hope you know it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I use, I've told you before, I usually quote things in the King James because that's how I memorized it. So I made it down a little bit read there. For God so loved the world, for God loved you so much that He let His Son come down to earth to die on your behalf. And if you believe in Him, you can have eternal life, personalizing it. God then goes on, Jesus then goes on in verses 13, uh, 3, 17, and 18, that I think are as beautiful or more beautiful than 16. For God sent not His Son to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved through Him. Who has the right to condemn us? God Almighty. He's the only perfect one. He's the only righteous one. He made the rules. And so He is the one who has that right to judge us, to condemn us to a life of eternal death. 
But that's not what Jesus came to do. You see, we were condemned already. That's what 18 goes on to say. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So Jesus didn't come to put us in our place to condemn us, to judge us. He came to provide an answer to that condemnation. He came to provide a way out, and that way out was through his blood. And so he launches off his time with Nicodemus sharing these truths of how one can be born again and telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, no matter how educated you are, no matter how well you can teach, no matter the position you have, no matter how much money you have, you need to accept Jesus Christ's work on your behalf. It's easy for us to think about, and, and the Pharisees would have had this attitude, the downcast, the trodden, all those we talk about. Uh, the the uh, Statue of Liberty calls your poor, wretched excess. We can see some of those and in our haughtiness. We can say, well, yeah, they need to know God. But I'm a good person. God knows me. God loves me. I'm okay. But the old preacher used to talk about the ground being level at the cross. All of us have the same need. We gauge goodness between us. And it's valid. I mean, it, it certainly is better to not be a murderer or a rapist or any of those things. But a sin is a sin in God's eye. And the smallest sin keeps us separated and so Jesus came to take care of that. The ground is level. So whether we're, whether we're that poor, wretched excess that the Statue of Liberty addresses, or whether we're uh, highfalutin like Nicodemus, everyone must come to that realization, I have sin in my life that falls short of the glory of God. I cannot overcome that in my strength. I need the atoning work of Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. And so that's the message that comes out of this John chapter 3, and it's, it's one reason it is so loved. Not everybody sees it. Verse 19 says, don't have the screen on it, but it says, this is the verdict. Light, Jesus Christ, has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want our sin exposed and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through their own strength. It's not what it says. Everything that has been done has been done through God. We abide in Him. He abides in us. We, we walk in His light. He leads, guides, directs. Ever so often that sin nature creeps up and we want to go to the shadows a little bit. Hopefully, typically, we don't find satisfaction there. We regret our choices and we come back into the light. God forgives. Fellowship's restored. And on that great day, 
He calls us home. That's the beauty of the gospel of Christ. That's the beauty of what happened today as evidenced in the testimony of these two girls and it evidenced in your lives, I hope. But it may be that someone's not made that realization, that decision. It may be you've heard the truth, but you don't want to accept it. Perhaps you think you're, it's God's going to just take everything away and, and you won't have any fun anymore. We had a good time Friday. Fifteen of us went to Fort Boonesboro. I didn't hear a cuss word among any of us. I didn't hear anybody jostling for position. Nobody came over and took my food. We had a great time of fellowship, of learning about uh, Daniel Boone and the fort, and then we went and saw God's beautiful creation at uh, Kentucky Horse Park. It was beautiful. The horses, uh, the horse there that the, some of them were standing next to, I think was 18 hands. That wasn't their biggest horse. They have some Percherons that are 19 hand, 19.2 hands, uh, uh, huge animals, and uh, the draft horses. Then they brought out a racehorse. God's creation is so beautiful. So when we yield ourselves to Jesus Christ, we don't lose everything, we gain everything. And it's with a clear conscience. We don't have to, we can gain stuff by taking it from someone, but then we have guilt. And if we get caught, we have penalty. God wants to give us everything in good measure, packed down, overflowing, that is good and right for us. And He's waiting to do that. To do that, we must acknowledge our need of Him in our lives. We must say, Lord, forgive me for I'm a sinner. I accept your atoning work. And I hope that you have done that. I hope that you will do that. We'd, I'd love to receive you today if you haven't made that decision. And then the other thing that follows in that is baptism. Jesus exampled baptism for us. He was baptized. And he commanded us to be baptized. The baptizing doesn't wash away our sins. It doesn't literally save us. It is a testimony of what has happened in our lives. It's a testimony to you of the decision in these girls' lives. And we do that symbolism, and I, 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 I tried to say those words, that as they go under, buried to the old life, risen anew. That's picturing what happens in our lives. If you haven't been baptized, it, please do that. Follow in obedience. It's, it's kind of hard to say, I love God, I'm obeying Him, but I'm not going to do what He told me to do. It, it, it doesn't jive. So if you need that baptism, let's talk, let's do that. Then finally, it's great to be part of a family. The family of God. I love that old song. We're a family here. Like every family, we squabble, we disagree, we get on each other's nerves, but we encourage each other, we challenge each other, we teach each other, and we hug each other. 
and helping us all in growing to Christ. No one person is perfect. No any one of us is perfect. But we're all moving in that direction. And if you're ready to be part of a family of God that's like that, we invite you to come be a part of us. Choose to do that step today. It's important to be part of a local church. You need it. We need you. And God desires it. So we're going to go into our invitation time now. I'll be here at the front to receive you as we sing. If you need baptism, come let me know. If you need to accept Christ as Savior, we can talk. We can set up a time. If you're ready to be part of this family of God, we'll welcome you with open arms as Mark comes and leads us. Let's stand.